Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. The title for this episode, Sherry, is Lowered Standards and Disappointing Outcomes. That made me chuckle when I looked at that this morning and remembered that that's what I think we should call this. Because I can't help but wonder, was there just a split-second moment in time for you? Or was it like kind of like a long-time-coming gradual thing when you realized how far down you had married in, <laughs> in marrying me? Was that like a sudden shock? Were you like, ah, what have I done? Uh, you know, um, I don't know. I know that you've said that a lot, but... I mean, you came from... Your, I, yeah, I didn't Your family have, like, had divorce, and you were like, oh, this guy's parents are still together. Yeah, so Yahoo, I don't... And then... I didn't feel... I didn't feel like I married, like, down, like, your family, and everything was just, like, a big facade. Like, I felt like... What has happened to him? Why is he not... Like, why is he not maintaining this, well, you know, life... I, I feel like I was it. a huckster pulling a bait and switch on you. Well, I got accused of that by you a lot in our relationship. I accused you of pulling a bait and switch? Yeah, like, about partying. You would say, well, you and I met, you used to party, and we would have sex and things like that, and now you're just this old curmudgeon, basically. I know. So you used to call me, you used to do that to me, and I don't really think I... I can't believe you grew up and were a good mother. <laughs> God. How did I, I end up with somebody just, like that? Well, maybe not even if we had kids, but just didn't stay in the party lifestyle, because it, it's not good for you for that. So, I don't, it was, it's hard to, like, when you, when you've said that, like, yeah. I've seen your standards lower, and you... Let yourself down and let me down in return, or let the kids down. And I would, but I wouldn't think that I married beneath me or anything like that. I don't know. All evidence to the contrary. We're going to get into all those details. But first, let's do a listener question. I want to warn our listeners that this listener question um, involves self harm and suicide. So I want to give that trigger warning up top. Uh, like a lot of our listener questions, this came in the form of an email that had um, kind of like a, a story to tell before they got to the question. So I want to summarize the story. And before I even do that, I want to remind our listeners that if you have a question that you'd like to ask us, please send that to matt at soberandunashamed.com. Matt with two T's at soberandunashamed.com. And uh, we won't give you a, a professional, like, psychological psychology answer because we aren't psychologists but we'll give you our take based on our experiences and the folks that we've gotten to know and the stories we've heard from others so here's the situation typical progressive slide into alcoholism the listener who asked the question is the wife of the husband who's the alcoholic there was infidelity involved also at at some point in the relationship on the part of uh, the gentleman, the alcoholic. Um, the, uh, the listener who is asking the question uh, is considering separation as part of her work toward detachment and getting her nervous system back in, in the right area. But the infidelity that took place was a result of a previous separation or it happened during a previous separation. So obviously that causes her some concern. And um, she's also afraid of what she put, what she explained as a death of despair, seeing that as possible. And, um, you know, death of despair is a term that's used in taking statistics and in, you know, reporting statistics now as things like suicide, or, you know, or, um, you know, giving up on um, maintenance of biology and taking care of yourself and um, just, you know, dying from basically severe depression. Like so, self-neglect. Self-neglect, yeah. All that stuff. So she's afraid of infidelity and she's afraid of uh, that her husband will, you know, end up dying a death of despair. Um, and so while the separation might lead to sobriety and recovery, 
Um, because we, as we know, right, pain is the only motivator to make people actually make big changes. So she can nag him all she wants. She can threaten him all she wants. Uh, she can find resources for him until she's purple. But none of that's going to work. He has to be in enough pain that it motivates him to get sober. Um, but she's afraid that it, again, it might cause infidelity or it might cause uh, him to commit suicide or to slowly drink himself to death. So her question, after she uh, provided us that very valuable background, is, so I feel whatever I do, there is potential for continued or additional trauma. I would love to hear your thoughts. And so I want to, be, especially because we're dealing with, you know, the death of despair potential, infidelity, something that you and I don't have experience with. I want to be really careful and confirm once more that you and I are not mental health professionals. We are just people with a lot of experience with alcoholism. So I want that to be said up front before we share our thoughts on the situation she's she's in. Um, first thought I have is a ton of empathy and compassion for her. That's a That's a very, very tough spot to be in. And to varying degrees of severity, I think it's a very familiar spot for a lot of people to be in. A lot of people might not be necessarily worried about the infidelity, or they might not be strongly worried about the infidelity piece, or they might not be strongly worried about suicide, although that's kind of in the back of their head. But these are the concerns that go through people's minds when they're considering separation. Do you want to take a stab at, at your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, I think that's a... She's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Do I stay in the relationship that's going to cause more harm and damage? And I, it doesn't mention if there are children involved, but if there are children involved, and you have to worry about the effects on them and, you know, your own mental health piece. Um, but then if you are going to separate, then you have to worry all the time. Then there's like that. I don't see what's going on, so I don't know. Now, we have had a lot of people in our groups that have talked about how when they have had separations, they've had lawyers involved and there's been agreements mm -hmm. where the, and because children are involved in this case, where there's a sober link. I want to address that real quick. Cause you've, you've brought up children a couple of times in your early response. Um, I, I'd have to go back and look at the email again to confirm, but the, it, Children, the concern about children was not at the top of her list. Mm -hmm. And I think that's to her credit because one of the things we've talked a lot about and learned a lot about is that it, you know, that you can't stay in a relationship just because you've got children. If the relationship's toxic, it's actually bad for your children to stay in the relationship mm -hmm. just because you've got children. And so I think she has moved, if, if she has children, and I, I can't recall, I think she has moved that to the side as not a determining factor. The, the factors are, will detachment help her? Will detachment help him get sober? And the concerns about the infidelity and the deaths of despair, death of despair. And I think, I think that's to her credit. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, but I was just going to say the case that I know, like, involves kids. So there is the sober link before the children go to see their father. Mm -hmm. I don't know what kind of legal ramifications you could put on any sort of legal separation where even if you don't have children involved, you can make sure that they're staying sober. I don't know if that's a possibility at all. I don't know what kind of legal terms, it. but I doubt it. But then, you know, because you can do the well check and things like that. And, you know, it's just, it gets, because, you know, you're kind of like trying to police from a distance. Well, and that's not very good and detachment, that's not, right? Yeah. And I was going to say that's not good detachment, but it, and it also has that, like, gut, you know, burning feeling of, like, curiosity of what's going on. And, and you're still just, yeah. you know, and you're still just policing from a distance. Um, but I think that we've had seen success with some couples with separation, you know, where there has been success from the alcoholics part of getting sober and getting help. But we've also seen, you know, a death of despair piece of it. But what I think the focus needs to be is on her own mental health. And I think if you stay or go, if there is a death of despair or infidelity or the continued drinking, we still, as partners, carry a little bit of guilt for whatever plays out. Yeah. You know? 
I think that that's just human nature. You would you would carry a little bit of guilt, but you kind of have to think about your own mental health and what is going to be best for you because you don't want to live in a life of pain and suffering at the hands of somebody else's addiction. I think I think you're right. I think you're 100% right. I think that the choices are there's no great choice. There are acceptable choices. And the, I think your what you said is that you know, I took some notes on this. I think that the listener who asked the question has to focus on what on herself. She has to focus on what she deserves and what her instincts are telling her to do. And you know the and and she has to find a way to be at peace with the idea that the outcomes that result from actions that are outside her control are going to be what they're going to be. You know, you 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 can't um, make the right decision for yourself and your own mental health and your own physical health and your own um, nervous system. And also control the situation and and prevent the two things that she fears the most. And but in the long run, I think her. I think if this was us, if this was me, if I was married to a, the this alcoholic, I think after a lot of deliberation, I hopefully would come to the conclusion that the only thing I can do, since I can't control. His behavior anyway the only thing I can do is do the right things to protect myself um, and to show respect for myself and to do what I deserve and what my instincts say and I think she I, I don't think this is easy I think she's got to develop a plan and then you know work toward it um, and take some time you know we've talked about on podcast episodes we've talked about morning the living, mourning the situation, right? Mourning isn't just for when somebody dies. Sometimes you have to say, oh, I got married. I had all these hopes and dreams. I wanted the fairy tale. The fairy tale is clearly not going to come true. And you have to spend some time mourning the situation that you're in as part of the process of getting out of that situation. And I think this is a good example of that. I, I don't think it would be wise for her to bypass the idea of spending some time contemplating and getting comfortable with the potential consequences of the decision. Like for instance, you know, I, I could do this thing that's clearly right for me and then my marriage, you know, maybe I want it to be a temporary separation and, and allow my nervous system to get back in check and hopefully he'll find a sobriety as a result. But maybe instead of finding sobriety, he'll find some other woman and he'll cheat on me and it'll destroy the marriage. I think she needs to get real comfortable with that potential before pulling the trigger. Yeah. Being comfortable and also that he might die. I think she needs to get comfortable with the the idea that that's a possibility. Because, you know, from what she's explained, maintaining the status quo is not a viable option. Just continuing to live, we know... Alcoholism is a progressive disease, so continuing to stay in that situation and letting it deteriorate and get worse and worse and worse, that's not doing her or her husband, or if there are kids, that's not doing anybody any good. So I think she's right in that a decision needs to be made, but I just think rather than fearing the consequences, she needs to get comfortable with the consequences. And that is a very difficult emotional, mental uh, exercise, you know, probably would benefit from some professional help working through that exercise. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Tough situation. Yes, it is. It's, yeah, there's no good answer. Uh, and there's no way to make a good transition to what we're going to talk about next because I don't want to make light of the very difficult situation she was in, but I don't want to not mention how good this coffee is. Isn't this great coffee? Yes. What, somebody that we've gotten to know in in our recovery communities who lives in Bolivia sent this. Have you ever had like Bolivian coffee from Bolivia? No. This actually came from Bolivia. I know. 
I mean, not like through a food distrib- distributor to a grocery store shelf. Like gonna... some guy in Bolivia mailed this to us. Yeah. Not some guy, somebody that I'm getting to know and really appreciating. Yes. Someone that's becoming a good friend. I don't know. I don't actually know if he listens to the podcast or not. <laughs> but this is such good coffee. I'm, I'm I can't like waiting say it. for you to plug the name of the the brand of coffee because I'm like, did we get a sponsor? <laughs> I don't. We An advertiser. We, you know, we get sponsor requests from uh, CBD products all the time. I don't want to. Pr- like, I don't. The jury's still I mean, out on CBD not, versus yeah, marijuana. Yeah, but at least it's not the THC. I don't know yeah, if it is. The, I don't whatever want the any, gummies. I don't want the, any part in that. What are those THC gummies that are like something nine and something eight and they're higher potency? Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. That's not for me. But anyway. That's funny. Delicious Bolivian coffee. If you do listen to the podcast, you know who you are and we thank you. <laughs> this is so good. Uh, Robin Williams. His definition. You know I love me some Robin Williams. Yes. He's like my favorite. Um, got me a man crush on Robin Williams. <laughs> Robin Williams. His definition of addiction, while on stage doing stand-up, of course, is that addiction is when your behavior deteriorates faster than you can lower your standards. So, what the heck does that mean? It's like when we break our own drinking rules, right? So we've set a standard. Here's my drinking rule. I'm only going to drink beer. I'm not going to drink hard alcohol. And then, yeah, I've had a few beers and we're out and there's people drinking whiskey and pretty soon we're doing shots. And, oh, you know, I can make all the excuses in the world. I can justify it till I'm purple. But I basically set a standard, which was I'm not going to drink hard alcohol. And then I'm drinking hard alcohol. So, like Robin says, addiction is when your behavior deteriorates faster then you can lower your standards. Mm-hmm. You've seen a lot of that for me, haven't you? I have. And I know that the way you presented or you opened the podcast and presented this idea to me that I, when did I come to realize I married down or whatever? I was like, what's that song? AA that I, Morgan something. God, here I've done all just, my research. Again. Just, I can't. just be quiet. Let's move on. With he talks about how I'm, he doesn't want his wife to figure out that he's married way, way up. That, yeah. Um, That's how I feel a lot of times. But I do recall, like when you now that you've mentioned that Robin Williams quote and given some examples, I remember like way back early, one of your friends said something like you have to become comfortable with drinking alone or something like that nature. Because we used to go out and socialize with friends or like you would have a cocktail mixed drink when you would come home from uh, work when we first were together. And I think that I viewed it like, oh, because maybe I was having a drink too or maybe not, but I was in the room that that was still like social. And then something like, what did he say? Something about drinking alone? I don't know. I... I was not unfamiliar with drinking alone, so <laughs> got to so, get comfortable with drinking alone. Or something don't. like that. I don't know. But it was something about drinking alone, and then I realized, oh, you got comfortable with that really early on. Yeah, like, when I was three, when <laughs> I saw my dad do it every night. Drinking alone, and... That was never And then some of your excuses of, like, you know, hair of the dog, or, you know, drinking certain times, like... There were just always these things like that just seemed to cross the line that were red flags that were leaching in well before your like active addiction of ten years. Well, that's the. But thing. it was so slow. Yeah, slow. That I that's just right. didn't realize it. Well, you didn't, and neither neither did I, right? And I think this is very common. We set these standards. You know the the whole saying: "It's five o'clock somewhere. We're not going to drink until five o'clock," and. You know, for a lot of people, I'm only going to drink on the weekends or I'm only going to drink when it's social. And then, you know, the stress of work starts to increase and you hear people talking about, oh, you know, I had a I had a hard day, so I'm going to have a drink. And you start to associate alcohol with stress relief and relaxation. And pretty soon you're drinking during the weekdays and you maybe never intended to do that. Maybe that's not how you behaved in college. There's a lot of people that go through college binge drink, party their ass off on the weekends, and don't drink during the weekdays. Yeah. 
I was not one of those people, but there's a lot of people who do that. And so drinking on the weekdays because maybe their parents didn't do that. That's a foreign concept. And then, but that's the slippery slope, right? All of a sudden you're, you're maybe drinking on the weekdays because it's glamorized in movies and TV and other people do it. And so you don't see any harm. And then, you know, and you, like I said, you're breaking all, all your drinking rules. And then you, you know, you start to maybe do some things that are less the norm. Maybe, you know, occasionally you start drinking in the mornings. Um, so well, it's I... not five o'clock. It's not even noon. It's, I mean, because for me, it was never five o'clock. It was noon. Yeah. And even I, in my family, sometimes a little before noon was fine if we were like on with, vacation yeah. or whatever. Well, and then it just made me think of like times when we would be like, oh, we're going to go to brunch. And then remember, like, you know, for a while, the big thing was, I mean, for a number of years, and maybe it is, but still... But like Bloody Mary bars. Oh yeah. Or mim- endless mimosas. When we were at in our twenties, yeah. Yeah, there was you a, go to there Saturday was a place, or Sunday brunch. Yeah, there was a place that we frequented um, in St. Paul that had a Bloody Mary bar. Yeah, they'd give you a, a glass with ice and vodka in it, and then you'd go over and yeah, you had all your twenty gym, options yeah, to put in there, all your stuff. So you know, and there were a couple places here in Denver that we had gone to a couple times that were like that, and and I remember like. For me, day drinking made me want to just go back to sleep, but it kind of ramped you up all day. So those were always really ugly nights if you didn't pass out early enough, um, right? You know, or if you passed out and took a nap or whatever, and then got up and started drinking. I mean, it was always like because we had people in town or friends were around or something of that nature. So you do a little bit of occasional festive morning drinking, mm-hmm. and then you know job gets more stressful, and you hate your boss, and you've got terms like hair of the dog in the back of your head, and eventually you start maybe maybe there's some maybe I'm just gonna have a swig or I'm gonna put a little bit of vodka in my coffee Oof. because a real uh, Irish cream coffee creamer. Yeah, because this is. <laughs> I, I've got this stressful thing to deal with, and I can justify it. I can, I can tell you why this is a valid decision because mm-hmm. my boss sucks and my job sucks, and this is really hard. And did you I ever... just need it to take a little edge off? And I use words like that. I just need to take the edge off. So I know that you used to have to take out clients for business sometimes for lunch and things like that. And you were in an industry that had, but every industry, let's face it, has a lot of drinking. Did you ever consume alcohol at lunchtime with these folks if you were not driving or... If the customer was a lunchtime drinker, then I, then yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, 100%. And that was company policy. I don't don't know if it was like written down anywhere, but like that was what my boss taught me. If the customer drinks, then you, you know you drink at lunch. And if the customer doesn't drink, you don't sit there and drink Manhattans while they're <laughs> sipping on their diet coke and think that's okay. But so the but listen, I would schedule sales calls, lunch sales calls, based on who the customer was. And if they drank at lunch, based on yeah, like, like I like like if it was a Friday, you were like, oh Friday, right. we we're certainly gonna Friday have to was drink always or... like this customer because I know they would have two or three drinks at lunch, and then I would just. Right off into the sunset after that lunch meeting, and uh, maybe I would, I don't know, type up a few sales calls with a beer in front of me, type up a few call reports with a beer in front of me, and that'd be it for the week, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. I planned all that. I never would have ever told you that, but but yeah. And then there were you know, customers that, from a social standpoint, I didn't enjoy their company. Those would always be like, morning meetings in their office. We're not going out. No no meal will be had. No socializing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, but so when we talk about like, uh, you know, lowering our standards and uh, or, or just changing our standards, you know, that morning drinking is something that can sneak in. I didn't really morning drink on a regular basis. I only morning drank when it was like, like a catastrophe. Like if we had had a bad weekend of binge drinking and fighting and arguing and it was awful on it, Monday morning would come and I was in such a state of depression and anxiety that I just couldn't get out of bed. And then I, 
you know, I would find, I would sit there and have, do the mental gymnastics, argue with myself. And then I would finally say, okay, if I can just do these three things that have to get done, absolutely have to get done on Monday morning, then I can, then I can drink. And I like, I, I'm having, I'm struggling even getting the words out now because it's so kind of embarrassing to think that I could justify, you know, drinking to start my work week. But, um, and it, it was rare. I mean, there was probably a half a dozen times total, even in the worst of my drinking and even at the end when I actually did that. But because that was, I mean, even for me, for someone, and we're going to talk about compartmentalization in a minute, but even for, for someone that has alcohol inserted into so many of his day parts. So again, when it came to social drinking, noon was the starting point, not not five o'clock for me, the way I was raised. And you drink to celebrate and you drink in stress and you drink in sadness and you drink, uh, you know, just in boredom. Or, and there's, there's always a reason to drink. So even for me, something like that, drinking on a Monday morning, that was always like, oh, you have crossed the line. This is bad. I, I could even, like, there's nothing I could say that, I mean, there were certainly things I could tell myself to make me do it, but there was nothing I could say to justify it and think it was okay. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think yeah. there are people, though, that pour a shot of vodka in their coffee every single morning on the way to work and say, uh, you know, this is not great, but I need this and it's okay because I do a good job and, and if I didn't have this, I couldn't do a good job. So it's become part of my routine and I need this. Yeah, and I think that that comes in from, I think, your upbringing a little bit, too, is like there was a certain set of standards that you bared witness to that, you know, and that you weren't exposed to, whereas maybe someone who didn't have quite that level of, like, I don't don't want to say, uh, like, self-esteem. Like, I feel like your parents had a certain self-esteem, never went down this road, your dad never, I mean, he drinks every day, but it never got, like, completely out of hand. Yeah. And things like that. So, you had this baseline. That's Whereas, a good like, point. I think about, like, my upbringing, when you, that's why I think it's hard for me to say, did you think that, you know, you married up or whatever? Because I'm like, uh, my parents were divorced. We had very little money growing up. There was struggle. My dad very rarely paid support. Um, so, you know, money was an issue. We lived um, very meagerly. I didn't feel like I was, like, the popular kid in school or anything like that nature. But for me, like, when I would see my dad and if he did drink, it was, you know, usually in excess. So your drinking in excess at times, especially on the weekends, wasn't shocking. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't see my dad through the week because Mm -hmm. of custody. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see what he did. You know, sometimes, like, he he then later on moved in with my grandparents, his parents who were older, and lived on their property. So, I would sometimes see him grab a beer, you know, when he got home from work, if I was staying with them for the week. But I never see him, I never saw him get completely out of hand, but I was in bed. You know, because I was little by the time he could have possibly drank. I think that's a really good point, and something that I've never, ever thought of. What... I mean, obviously, I know that there's influence of our upbringing on how we carry ourselves as adults. I mean, that's obvious, but I've never made that direct line correlation between what we see as kids and where that line is crossed. Because like I said, growing up, there were lots of day parts and lots of reasons to drink. But drinking on a Monday morning, that was never considered acceptable. That was never demonstrated to me. And so when I would do that, I couldn't, I couldn't um, pull the wool over my own eyes and convince myself that it was okay. I mean, that when I would do that, that's when, even while I was drinking for medicinal purposes, the depression and anxiety were just getting worse while I was drinking because I knew it wasn't okay. Yeah, I knew it wasn't okay. Well, and to me, that's that's a part of a little. A little bit of the part of like breaking the cycle, breaking the cycle of what kids see, what they then think is okay. Yeah, into you, adulthood. Like, I mean, if if I saw like, you know, if we still had lived with my dad and my parents didn't get divorced, and I, you know, 
maybe saw him drinking in the mornings or taking a shot of whiskey or pouring in his coffee before he went off. I don't know if he did. You know, I don't know. I wasn't there. Right. I don't think so. It seemed like he always had his shit together when I went to see him at his off. you know, at his, the place he worked. But I don't know. You know? Another excellent point because when we talk about changing the generational cycles, just talking isn't going to do anything. Telling our kids, you know, alcohol is bad, you shouldn't drink, they're not going to listen to that. But giving them examples of options that we've said for a long time, our goal is just to show our kids that drinking is not a foregone conclusion. Just because you become an adult doesn't mean you have to drink. And uh, the this is actually driving that point home. If you see people live happy, successful lives and alcohol is part of no part of the day parts, he's part three times in that <laughs> sentence, I don't think that was right. But if they never see you drink and you still are able to celebrate things and are able to mourn things and are able to be happy when it's time to be happy, then you're giving them an example, whether they realize it on a conscious level or if it's just ingrained in the back of their head of not drinking is a option for a viable adult. And the impact of the images you and I both saw as children and how that, how that translated into how we viewed alcohol as adults there were lines that we didn't think it was okay to cross. And until this conversation we're having right here, right now, in early November of 2023, I didn't realize how some of those lines that I, even when I crossed them, I knew they weren't okay to cross. Those all came from my childhood. That's, they didn't come from, you know, necessarily society. Like I said, the five o'clock thing was noon in my house. So society said five, I said noon, and that never bothered me. Mm-hmm. Um because of what I saw, but I never saw morning drinking. That's really interesting. I hope we've explained it in a co- coherent way because a little light bulb has gone off for me. And then I think the, the the other standard that gets crossed a lot, this is one that mostly I didn't get to as far as crossing is concerned, hiding alcohol. I never had stashes of alcohol around the house that, or stashes of empties around the house. I mean, I hid how much I drank, but I never, I mean, and I would sneak swigs out of like a warm gin bottle out of the liquor cabinet. <laughs> I wish everyone could see your face as I said that. I look like a cat coughing up a hairball. That sounds so gross. I can't think of anything worse. Maybe other than pee, warm pee. Mm, never had any of that. I don't know. Gin is pretty bad for me. I don't like gin. Um but so I did that kind of stuff, but I never hit hit a bottle. Because in your house, it was very accepted. And because of your dad had kept the Back standard. Back childhood thing. Your dad had kept the standard. It is totally my right to come home and drink these two normal portioned and ratioed vodka or gin, gin tonic. to tonic. Whereas like... You didn't want, when your dad would come to our house as adults, as we were adults and have a family, like just, I'll say, you know, eight years ago, you didn't want your dad to make your cocktail at his house or your house because it wasn't going to have enough gin for you. That embarrassed you, or enough vodka, whatever it was, that embarrassed you, but it didn't, so you would just try to make it, you know, mm-hmm. like, or you would come back and you would pour, but you never were embarrassed about the actual drinking. And yeah. that's where you were with me because that was making sure that you were showing me, look, drinking is normal. Daily yeah. drinking is normal. But your, you know, two cocktails that you used to have just at the end were just a packed glass of 16 ounce pint glass of ice with just vodka. There was no tonic, you know, or soda water. In well, there. you mentioned the industry I was in. There were a lot of people in that industry that drank uh, hard alcohol on the rocks with no mixer and in fact I remember having a conversation when I was in Canada with customers at one point and this this customer was basically belittling and emasculating anyone who would put a mixer in their drink are you not man enough basically just to drink the liquor and so I think that was as as much as I didn't agree with his um you know, belittling of other people, I did say, yeah, I'm a man. He's right. 
And that was it. No more mixer. Hmm. Disgusting. Yeah. But anyway, so that... But you, did, but you didn't grow up with your dad hiding alcohol around the house, you know? Like, right. you didn't... And, you know, it was very... It was open. That's right. You know, back to the topic from the listener question of infidelity, there's all kinds of cases, case studies that show that, you know, it, if there's been infidelity as you're a child growing up and you've seen infidelity from your parents makes as much as that's disgusting to you it also makes it much easier when you become an adult to cross that line and that's nothing I ever experienced growing up my parents were always very committed and loyal to each other and so committed loyalty came very easy for me it, mm -hmm. it you know I can say that even in the depths of my worst depravity there were never times where I was like oh I should just go sleep around on Sherry and that'll get her that'll teach her like that never it just never crossed my mind. It wasn't, and this isn't me bragging about how morally pure I am. Yeah. Well, it's just because you didn't witness it. That's exactly And right. even though, say, maybe infidelity broke up your fam your parents' marriage and relationship, that is still somewhat normalized. Oh, well, that happens all the time. Yeah. That's what you've probably been told or heard, or you just, it's been your normal. Yeah. You know, like one of the ladies in our groups one time said, yeah, you think your home life is normal until you go spend the night somewhere else. Yeah. I like good or bad. I mean, I remember like going to a lot of situations where I was like, holy shit, like the daughter is just, the older sister is just smoking pot in the bedroom as long as, it, as long as you keep it in your room, says the mom to the, you know, 18 year old. Yeah. You know, and we're seven and I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You know, like that was a line you would never cross, but in their house, well, she, you know. And that, like, that's why this discussion about lowering standards is so important because <laughs> we do, on a subconscious level, we take, like, my whole, you know, never considering cheating on you thing, that isn't something I sat around and thought about. I wasn't like, well, I'm 18 now, I'm an adult, I can get a wife and cheat on her if I want to. But I don't think I will. Like, there was never any, like, decision-making about that. It just never entered, never entered my mind. So, I, I think the degree to which our adult patterns come from our childhood, again, this is nothing new. This is stuff that gets talked about a lot. But I, I think it's an even bigger deal than most of us realize. But so that line, that standard dropping into uh, hiding alcohol and just flat out lying to you, just saying, no, I haven't been drinking when I clearly had been. I never, I never crossed that, but that is, that is typical. That is, you know, I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it a universalism, but it happens a lot, the lying and the, the hiding of alcohol. And we've had a lot of loved ones tell us that's even more painful than the drinking, the lying. So this is some serious, um, deterioration of behavior and standards. Um, you know, one of the things that we make a mistake in doing as our alcohol consumption increases, we can always find somebody to whom uh, our drinking compares favorably. We can always find someone who's worse off than we are. And I'm here to tell you that's just not important. That's you can point to, and then I used to do this to you all yeah. the time. Look, Sherry, look at how hard I work. Look at my job. Look at, you know, look at the vehicle you drive, and look at the house we live in, and we never miss a mortgage payment, and blah 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 blah. You can always find somebody who's worse off, and then think that justifies the situation you're in, and it just doesn't. The question shouldn't be, is there somebody worse off? than me. The question should be, am I lowering my standards? Can I look at how what I where I used to draw the line and has that moved and has that moved to accommodate more drinking or more frequent drinking? And if it has, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. This this idea of lowering standards, this is important Wait, for the can sorry, I just, go ahead. I'm sorry, I just want to chime in. I think that's why it's really hard for the people with high functioning alcoholics. The, the point you mentioned about there's always someone worse off than you that you can compare yourself right. to. Right. Because you haven't gotten to that rock bottom moment. Um, I had a brother-in-law. He um, has passed away now. My sister had divorced him 
Um, and then he ended up basically dying a death, death of, of despair. despair. Um, he had a heart attack, but it was, you know, from the smoking and the drinking, mm-hmm. um, living alone and being isolated. So, you know, like you would, you would say, well, I don't drink like him. Yeah. You know, we would see him come out and get like a cup of orange juice and then go in to his hidey hole of alcohol. The bathroom closet is my, where he hid Because my yeah. sister was like, I don't want it out in public, you know, out in view yeah. of the family and... You know, like the hiding part of it came later yeah. as his drinking got worse mm-hmm. and drinking himself basically to death. And that's the reason that she had to leave because she could not live like that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but you would often compare to him. And I was like, yeah, but like when we met him and she married him, he was a high functioning alcoholic. But that's what's really hard for the families and the high functioning alcoholics to realize doesn't matter how you compare to others, like you said. It's what is it? Is it a problem for you? Is it causing problems in your relationship? Is it causing problems with your kids? Is it, you know, is it going beneath what you feel is right by your own set of standards within yourself or your partners? And that, because I mean, for many years, like, I would sometimes get into the habit of believing okay, well, maybe it's not that bad because, you know, you weren't beating me or you weren't cheating on me or you weren't gambling or you weren't spending all the money. You weren't out all the time, you know, away from home. You were not yelling at the kids, you know. So it was really hard to say, but your drinking is still a problem. It's not right the way you're drinking. Well, that's what I want to transition into is we focused on so far the lowering of the standards of the drinker, the, the my side of the fence. But let's talk about your side of the fence. This is just as important of a topic, maybe more so even, for the loved ones, for the spouses who aren't the problematic drinkers. And, you know, we could throw in all the good cliches, right? Like, do you want to die a death of a thousand paper cuts? Or, you know, what's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back? But... We alcoholics have, this is a universalism, we are skilled at compartmentalization. So I can drink too much, we can argue all weekend, I can even be in such a bad shape that I drink on that Monday morning, and finally maybe I get through Monday, I've drank all day, And I finally, Tuesday, I sober up, I go to work. Tuesday and Wednesday, I'm just basically silent in such deep depression, but I know I can't keep drinking. And so I just do the bare minimum of work and detach as much as possible from you and family. And then maybe by Thursday, I'm apologizing. And, uh, you know, we're starting to kind of reconcile. I can take all of that, that event, that five-day event or whatever it is, right? And I can put that in a box and I can say I'm sorry and I can say that happened, that was a thing, I've moved on. And I can, you know, then I go a month and everything's fine and I drink a little and I, you know, probably drink in ways that you don't appreciate but I don't cause big problems. And then it happens again, you know, in six weeks or something like that. And I can take each one of those instances and look at them as singular events and I can tweak and I can say, oh, here are the things I did wrong. I need to not do this. I need to not drink on an empty stomach or I need to, uh, you know, change the rule. I, I remember there was for a while I had the rule on the weekends I could drink beer during the day and I could drink hard alcohol at night, but I needed a gap. So I needed to be done drinking beer by three before I could start drinking hard alcohol at six. Like that's how detailed my rules got sometimes. And I'm sure that was the result of a bad incident. So I take that bad incident, I put it in a box and say, this is a thing that happened. Here's my solution. I've solved that problem. That box gets put on a shelf never to be revisited again. That's how typically alcoholics can compartmentalize. Loved ones, spouses, don't compartmentalize. You compile. So you take that one off, that one box, and it gets stacked on top of the other box. That gets the next box gets stacked. So on we don't top have of individual that. boxes. We just have a huge garbage bag. Yeah, better put. But it just they aren't even separate. They aren't instances. even separated. It's just piled in there. One, two, three, four, five. Just layered, 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 layered. 
and all the little things that you think don't matter throughout the week that you do because of either you're grumpy because you're not drinking or you're because your body's kind of like rejecting the sobriety or and uh, you know or just the little even if you're not in you know totally intoxicated or you're not drinking to excess just some of the the snippets and comments that happen all those little things yes. like I'm like stocking stuffers they just kind of go in there too Ooh. just kind of filling up the space like stocking stuffer that's pretty good well you talked about like boxing it up and it made me think of gifts so you know so but it's here's, just here's this shit gift <laughs> so but it's just like and it fills in all the little spaces that's right that's yeah because there is no I'm, compartmentalization because wow. we're just and I know that it is terrible because I am a really good added up person like, even with our children, I know incidences are supposed to be separate. And that was one of the, you know, the parenting books I read was incidents were supposed to be separate. But how many times, and, and because I was living with a person who overdrank and then became an alcoholic, how many times does a child have to make the same mistake over and over before you don't say, listen, you do it all the time. And that's why you're being punished. Not because you did it just this once, but because you continuously do it. So maybe my level of frustration with you was like kind of leaking in on the kids a little bit, but I wanted them to like understand that people see this as not individualized incidences. They are compounded. You do it once, twice, three times. It's not an individual mistake. It's the same thing over and over and over again. You are on fire today. Must be the coffee. (laughs) It's delicious Bolivian coffee. (laughs) You're on fire though. Here's another thing. I, I, you know, a vi- you've given me a visual. I've never thought of it this way, but yeah, I, I treat I treated my instances as these solid objects that I could store away somewhere, and and for you, it's like a liquid. I love what you just said. It just fills in all the little spaces. It just flows into all parts of your life. Let's talk about some specifics because I think if you were a if you were your friend. And you heard these stories, you would say, oh, what are you doing in that relationship? Whereas I can take these stories and put them in their little box and say, I'm sorry, and then move on. And I think it's a great example of how standards get lowered. Like there was the time that we were at a party and this was common that we would we'd be with people and yeah, I'd be drinking as much or more than the next highest consuming person there. I usually found one or two people that drank like me and we'd drink, drink, drink. And so I wasn't necessarily like over the top, you know, more drunk than anybody else there. I was usually at the top end. I was yeah overachieving with there the was, other overachievers. There was usually, yeah. There was usually one or two people there that were on your level, Yeah, but I knew they didn't go home and continuously drink. You don't know that. I don't know. Well, I bet a lot of them didn't. That's what we thought. And they thought that of me. But... Also, because I knew what you were drinking like at home before we even went to the event. But we would get in the car. This was very typical. We'd get in the car and my mood would immediately change. I'd be ornery because the party was over. Sullen. Yeah. And so this was one where I had drank enough that I was letting you drive, thank God. Because I was an asshole about that sometimes. But so you drove and we got home and I passed out and puked on myself and... Just like, thank God I was sitting up because I didn't even make an effort to like puke out the window or puke on the floorboard. I just puked like as I sat there and it went all down the front of me. And you let me stay in the car overnight, to your credit, good job. And then it was very hot the next morning and and I just sat in the car and sunbaked the puke to myself. And then eventually when I woke up and realized what had happened, I had to clean that all up. But that is a disgusting incident that I lived through and that you experienced secondhand. And it's just awful. And so for me, you know, that cycle happened, that five-day cycle, selling for a while, apologizing for a while, and then putting it on a shelf and thinking of it as something from the past that uh, will never happen again. Mm-hmm. For you, that's a compilation. We've talked, we talked on the episode that we did with Catherine, episode 200, about the time we were on our way to vacation after you and I had stayed up all night fighting and I had 
drank obviously the whole time we were fighting and then I was driving and I ripped the car around twice and it caused all kinds of trauma for our whole family. I mean, it was just awful, 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 awful. Again, for me, that's something where I looked at it and I knew I was wrong and I went through my cycle and I apologized and then I said, here, that thing's gone. But for you, you know, that just added to the the big garbage bag, like you said. Mm-hmm. And then we had the many instances where you know, you're just walking on eggshells because you don't know what my mood, you don't know if I'm going to be in a great mood and be joyful and playful or you don't know if I'm going to be depressed or, you know, and so you and the rest of the family are on eggshells. Or the inconsistency <clears throat> that you would be joyful and playful and then snap. Yeah. You would not be joyful yeah. and playful. They would be loud and why are you getting so carried away? It's almost bedtime, you know, so. So from the perspective of the alcoholic, I think... I, I think I safely speak for most of us in saying we can look at these as separate instances and you look at them that fills in all the spaces, all the cracks. It's all <clears throat> one big thing. And so when we talk about standards and when you lower your standard, it's to your own detriment. Um, these are things that happen over time. Alcoholism is a progressive disease, not only in the quantity that the alcoholic drinks, but in the standard lowering that the spouse and the other loved ones do as well. You don't just one day wake up and say, I'm okay if my husband, we've got four kids and we've got these responsibilities. I'm okay if my husband pukes on himself and sunbakes in the car all day on Saturday you know, morning. That's fine with me. And I'm okay if he drives drunk and whips the car around when we're on the way to vacation. I'm okay if every day... There are eggshells that we're walking on because we never know what his mood's going to be like. That's fine. That sounds good. That isn't how it happens. You progress into that. And so what I would suggest if you are the loved one of an alcoholic is reconsider your baseline. What do you think is acceptable? And do it from the standpoint of you haven't lived through this nightmare. Do it. Pretend like you're not in that relationship and pretend like you're thinking about starting a new relationship. What's okay? What are you willing to live with? Are you are you going to accept being called a bitch once in a while? Because <clears throat> I would argue that Sherry, if, if we were just early on dating, and not playfully, but in a mean way, I was like, you fucking bitch. If I said that to you on our second date, you and I wouldn't know each other. Like we would be a distant, you'd, you'd have this faint memory of that guy that one time that was mean. You wouldn't even remember my name. We wouldn't be married with kids. Oh, I'd remember your name. <laughs> I remember. I am vengeful. I would remember your name, but we wouldn't be. You would also remember that your hand was sore from punching me <laughs> the next day. <laughs> yeah, you're a lot tougher. Uh, than me. Yeah, but I, uh, I would have remembered you. But you wouldn't be in my life. That was for sure. Yeah. But so, just, yeah. I, I just think the similarities are so, uh, they're there and they're troubling. The similarities of how the progression, everyone understands who knows, you know, if you've been through Alcoholism 101, if you've done a few Google searches and you've read a couple of articles or you've been to one Al-Anon meeting or you've read one memoir, memoir, everyone understands that alcoholism is a progressive disease as it relates to the drinking progressing and the depression and anxiety progressing for the drinker. But it's also a progressive disease when it comes to the standards being lowered for what the people around the drinker are willing to accept. And so if you wouldn't accept being called a fucking bitch from someone that you just met and were starting to date, then why would you accept that from someone who's your committed partner that you've been with for 20 years? It doesn't make any sense. You know, if if that would be a red flag, if you started dating someone that they were passed out in their car and baking in the sun on a Saturday morning, then why is it okay after you've been together for a long time? How about the gaslighting and the blame shifting? If you are married to someone who's constantly telling you that what you're seeing with your own eyes isn't real, and that, oh, the drinking isn't the reason that we can't get along in our relationship the reason we can't get along is because there's something wrong with you, wife. There's, mm-hmm. there, You are mentally unstable. You are a control freak. You were raised poorly. 
whatever. It's your fault that we can't get along. It's not the alcohol. And you know, you see with your own eyes that it's the alcohol. Would you accept that if if this was a stranger telling you that? No. I. Well, I know you said also like think about starting from a new relationship. But also look at it like if this was your friend... And they were telling you these things. Like, would you want your friend to be in a relationship like this? Yeah, good point. I mean, I think we hear so many stories of, like, they are hard to confide in because they only care about you and they don't care about all the details they don't understand. And I get that part. Totally get that part. But you also have to think, would I want my friend to be in this relationship? Don't I want better for her or him? Like, don't I want better for them? Yeah. So... When you're thinking about those things, but what happens is it's just so easy to get sucked in because your self-esteem gets diminished. You get the gaslighting takes hold. You don't understand, like, somehow you think you have a part in it because of what you've been told. It's, so that's why there needs to be these groups and you need to find people that are your community that understand the disease of alcoholism, but that can give you some truths that that is not your fault of it, even though you totally feel like it. And it's hard to convince someone that it's not their fault. They didn't do it. I mean, I used to ask you in early sobriety, like, if I had done this, you know, differently, would you have continued to progressively drink and you know, become an alcoholic and things like that. And you would say, you know, you would say, no, you couldn't have done anything different. Yeah, I believe that. But I feel like, oh, my yelling or my screaming or my um, mood swings or, you know, me fighting you and arguing with you or, you know, we're all to blame. And, And somehow I felt like I gave you ammunition to drink and hide. You gave me excuses to drink and hide. Your behavior was a result, not a cause of my alcoholism. Yeah, and that, I think, is really hard to accept. Yeah. Because somehow we would act like we are a couple, we're a partnership, we're in it together. But it is not your fault. People are choosing poor behavior and excuses and addiction. And drip, drip, drip. And pretty soon the liquid fills in all the spaces. This isn't something that happens in one, you know, dramatic moment where I wasn't an alcoholic and now I am. I wasn't treating you poorly and now I am. It slowly creeps in and the standards get lowered. But that pop culture definition of insanity applies to both sides of this, the drinker and the loved one. And, you know, that, again, more cliches, I guess, but... You know, insanity is when you do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. If if you are the spouse of an alcoholic and you're thinking, I can just calm myself and not engage when he drinks and, and not take the bait and not fight back. I mean, yes, that's a good tactic for emotional detachment to protect yourself. But if you think that's that's the solution, it's not. It's not. Um doing the same things over and over and expecting different results it just it never works never works and so um i think it's interesting last week's episode on expectations we talked about in sobriety in longer term recovery are you expecting more from your spouse than they're comfortable giving we talked about the love languages i am for instance not a gift giver And if you're just holding out until my recovery gets to the point where I become a good gift giver, you're going to be disappointed. And so we need to have those expectations baseline. Baseline being mutual protection agreement and uh, respecting each other. So we looked at don't don't get your expectations too high. Today, this week, we're kind of talking about the other end of it. Don't let your standards get too low. You still need to hold that baseline. That baseline is important. Whether... Whether you are um, taming your own expectations so that you're not disappointed, so you're lowering to the baseline, or whether you're raising to the baseline, which is what the topic is for today. Don't accept being called a bitch. Don't accept a spouse passed out in the driveway. That is not okay. Um, And you need to have enough self-respect 
to uh, make the moves necessary to get that out of your life. Because nobody should have to live that way. Nobody should have to live walking on eggshells constantly. Um, yeah. So, if your Christmas stocking is full of <laughs> shit and puke, <laughs> then you need to go... Then you're married to an alcoholic. And then you're married to an... <laughs> you might be married to an alcoholic, <laughs> if... Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.